You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we've been in the, the Gospel of John now for several weeks. Um, been able to see how John has specifically written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name um, and we see John very carefully through verses 1 through 18, really helping us to see better who Jesus is, better who John the Baptist is, um, so that there's no confusion even between the two. Um, we've talked about how the gospel is not just written for people to become Christians, but it's written so that even Christians would keep believing and would believe even deeper uh, in who Jesus is. And so, um, this isn't just a gospel for somebody who's not a believer. It's certainly a gospel for those that have already started to believe and uh, that it would help us to keep believing um, and certainly to reduce the time frame that it takes for us to really believe and trust God when we encounter difficult circumstances, that we don't want to face difficulties and trials and, and, and go into crisis mode and then have to be brought back into a mindset of trusting in Jesus. We want to we wanna really lessen the gap to where we're we're immediately turning to Jesus when, when difficulties come our way, um, that we don't have to be prompted and reminded to do so. And that's, that's a growth thing. That's a sanctification thing. But um, certainly as we go through this gospel, I hope that all of us will see that, that time gap reduced uh, as we come into difficulties that we don't even know are coming, that we'll be quick to trust and believe that Jesus is in control of those things. We've seen that we have a responsibility, much like John the Baptist, to tell others about Jesus, that we're to point every man to Jesus, we're to do that with humility, but to do it with intentionality as well. I mean, so we've talked about our different contexts, uh, work and our neighborhood where we live, our family that God has blessed us with, the hobbies that we enjoy, that it causes us to come into contact with different people. And those are people that need to know about Jesus. And are we doing a good job of pointing others to the light in our context? Last week, we saw a little bit more about who Jesus is, that he's the visible representation of God's glory. Um, and so we, we see him coming into human form and being a human example, uh, giving us a clear picture even of who God is uh, as he comes to live as a man. We see people refusing him, particularly the Jewish people that were supposed to be anticipating him. They refuse him and, and don't believe in him, uh, a large portion of them that, that is. We see our need to be responsive to Jesus as he's continually made known to us that uh, there's some real theological things that we come to understand about Jesus that we saw last week. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so uh, last week we talked about the, the identity that comes to us when we believe in Jesus that uh, verse 12 says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so I challenged you last week, is your identity as a child of God what most people think about you first? You know, I told you when I went off to college up in Virginia, I wanted people to know me as a, as a person from Georgia, that I didn't want to lose my identity as being from Georgia. And so I wanted to almost overcompensate for that. Like I wanted people to know I wasn't from Virginia, I was from Georgia but our identity, what we want people to know about us should ultimately be that we're a child of God. And so that should be the identity that we're most concerned about conveying to others. And we talked about, are you faithfully exposing others in your context to the glory of God so that they are without excuse? Are you being utilized 
the way that God wants to in your context so that others are coming to know him or at least are leaving without an excuse for not knowing him. All right, today we come to uh, John chapter 1, verse 19, and it's a passage that, that begins to play out more in a narrative sense as we hear John the Baptist interacting with uh, Jews, particularly priests and Levites that have come to question his identity, to question him about who he is and, and what is he doing and, and what's the purpose of his ministry? Why is he about the type of business that he is about? And so we'll unpack this passage together today. From a summary sentence standpoint, as a witness of Jesus, we are tasked with communicating the message of hope with humility and accuracy so that all might believe in him. As a witness of Jesus, we are tasked with communicating the message of hope with humility and accuracy so that all might believe in him. For our kids, Christians are called to share hope with the world. All right, and so what we see here in this passage, John the Baptist has been doing his ministry. He has been baptizing. He has been preaching. At this point, he's actually already baptized Jesus. And so Jesus has already experienced his uh, temptation in the wilderness. And so again, we said John leaves a lot of that stuff out. He's very interested in particular things that help us believe particular things about Jesus, right? And so John the Baptist's ministry has started to develop a reputation. And so the, the religious leaders are concerned about the following and how they're not really included in, in the plan here. Like this isn't somebody that's tied to the, the temple. He's not tied to the Sanhedrin. He's not tied to the local synagogues. Who is this guy and what is it that he's doing? Do we agree with him? Do we disagree with him? And so they send this convoy to come talk to him to get clarification as to who he is and what is he about says, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. This, this chapter uh, kind of unpacks what we've already seen earlier in the chapter. So the remaining of the chapter, remember we said that at the beginning of the chapter, we get this picture of John denying that he is the light, but that he's here to bear witness about the light so that people might believe in him. It says, verse six, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. We see this now in narrative format. We see John being accused of being the light potentially, or at least questioned about whether or not he is the light. John having to deny that piece and then bear witness about the light. And what we're going to see uh, in, in a few weeks is people starting to believe in him. We're going to see uh, the first disciples start to follow Jesus in response to John kind of paving the way, because some of the first disciples are actually a transfer. People that had been following John now start to follow Jesus, right? So we saw early in the chapter, John is not the light. He's here to bear witness about the light so that all might believe in him. We're now seeing that actually play out as John is questioned about being the light he tells them that he is not, that he is here to bear witness about Jesus, and then people start to believe that message, and we get to witness that through the text. All right, so let's jump right in and kind of see 
some of what's going on here in these verses. Number one, as we talk about becoming a witness and, and ultimately we're going to keep coming back to this theme throughout the book of John, because the book of John is written so that we would believe in Jesus. So the piece where we want to believe in Jesus, and then the other piece where we want to help other people believe more in Jesus as well, right? So as we talk about us becoming witnesses, what we see from the example of John the Baptist is that we have to humbly maintain a proper view of ourself if we are going to be a good witness for Jesus. For our kids, don't think too highly of yourself, right? We have to humbly maintain a proper view of ourself, and this is the piece that's probably or, or probably should be, can be, will be maybe the most convicting part about today's sermon, um, because I think we're all prone to think too highly of ourselves. I think we're all too prone to to not approach things with humility uh, just through our sin nature, our desire to to be more than we are. I mean, it, it goes all the way back to our roots in the Garden of Eden where the ultimate temptation was you can be like God so you can be more than what you were really created to be is the temptation that Satan gave to him, right? And so I think all of us are prone to, to think too highly of ourselves, to put way too much emphasis on ourselves. It's why Paul in Philippians has to remind us to look to the needs of others as much as you look to the needs of yourself, right? Because he doesn't have to tell us to love ourselves. He doesn't have to tell us to look to our needs. We, we do that on our own. We have to kind of come out from ourselves and, and be willing to look to other people and their needs, right? So we have to humbly maintain a proper view of ourself. It says the Jews show up, the priests, the Levites show up, and they ask him, who are you? Now notice they don't, they don't start with, are you the Messiah? Or, hey, we've heard you're the Messiah. Are you the Messiah? They just say, who are you? right? So it's kind of in John the Baptist's ball, ball court to say, this is, this is who I am, right? Because the question is, who are you? And he, t- he's, he starts to respond with who he's not, right? Because there may be even some understanding by John the Baptist of what they were even alluding to, right? Like, why are you here? Well, you may be here because you've heard these rumors. And I've already been trying to stop these rumors. And so his initial reaction to this question is not to proclaim himself, but to ultimately proclaim what he is not, right? He immediately jumps in and says, I am not the Christ. So number one in your notes there, John denies being the Messiah. He understood his proper place of pointing people to their proper help. And I think what we see throughout this chapter is that he is regularly turning the conversation away from himself to Christ. Who are you? I'm not the Christ. Notice that he doesn't even try to give an accurate promotion of himself. Rather than telling them who he is, he tells them who he isn't, which is a great sign of his humility. He could have easily promoted himself here, right? Like, and he could have done it accurately. They show up and they say, who are you? He could have easily said, well, I'm the son of Zechariah, who's a priest, right? And I'm the one who the angel came to my dad and said that, that I was going to be born. And, and my job is to pave the way for the Messiah. And, and this is who I am. And he could have very easily, by doing that, made it known that he wasn't the Christ, right? Like he could have very easily talked about who he was and by doing so shown that he wasn't the Christ, the Messiah. But instead of promoting himself at all, instead of making himself known at all to these people, he is very quick to say, I'm not, I'm not Jesus. I'm not, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one that you've been waiting for. Right. And this, this probably, if you think about it, if you just kind of pause and think about it, 
could have been a very tempting opportunity for him to seize control of the situation and make very much of himself, right? Because he's talking to the religious leaders. He comes from a religious family where his dad has been a priest who's worked in the, in the temple, right? So this would have been a great chance for him to really make much of himself because maybe he felt like he wasn't being made much of, right? Like he wasn't in, 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 uh, in line with all of these religious guys. He wasn't part of their meetings. He wasn't part of their leadership. And yet he kind of knows that he's got a pretty important role when it comes to the Messiah, right? But he doesn't promote himself here. He's not concerned with, with, their, with their knowledge of him. He just keeps diverting the attention away from himself back to Jesus. He says, I'm not the Christ, implying that there is a Christ, there is a Messiah, and it's not me. Could have promoted himself, but he doesn't, Right? So they follow up that question with, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not, right? So number two, he denies being Elijah, which is kind of a confusing thing. Why would, why would they think this or why would they assume this or, or why would this even really be a possibility? And I know in our groups this morning, we were talking about this and I know um, a lot of you were turning to the, the book of Malachi to see why they would even have this thought process of Elijah from the Old Testament making a reappearance, right? In Malachi chapter three, verse one, it says, behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So you get this anticipation that before the Messiah comes, there will be a messenger that goes before him. And then you skip down into uh, Malachi chapter four, And you see in verse five, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Okay. So you get this picture of, of this anticipation that Elijah, the prophet, the the great prophet of the old Testament, he will make a reappearance before the Messiah comes. Okay. So that, that thought process is out there. Then there's some other things that you kind of throw into this. One, Luke chapter one, there's a prophecy even surrounding John the Baptist in regards to Elijah. In Luke chapter one, verse 13, but the angel said to him, talking about his dad, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Right? So here the angel in Luke is saying, you know that passage in Malachi 4? That's your son right? Like this whole anticipation of Elijah, the prophet coming, we're going to see that fulfilled through your son, John the Baptist. So we're told that he would come with the power of Elijah. Even the physical appearance is really similar. You look at second Kings chapter one, verse eight, it's, it's basically the same description. So in second Kings one, eight, they're describing Elijah. They give this description and somebody responds and says, oh, that's Elijah. Like I would know that description anywhere, Right. And then in uh, Matthew chapter three, verse four. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. 
that description of him is the same description that you find in 2 Kings about Elijah. So even from a physical appearance, you would have immersed yourself in the Old Testament if you were a Jewish person, especially a Jewish religious person. You would have known Elijah. You would have known the, 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 um, the description of him in the text. This is what Elijah looked like. This is what he wore. And then you would see John the Baptist and you would say, man, these two guys are a lot alike, right? So physical appearance is real similar. Uh, but then you throw on top of the fact that Jesus later would even identify John in this way and say that he's Elijah in Matthew chapter 17, verse 10. And the disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He, talking about Jesus, answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist, right? So there's a lot of reasons for us to think and see why they were asking, are you Elijah, right? What's interesting is that the angel is saying, hey, John the Baptist, he's Elijah of Malachi chapter 4. Jesus is saying, hey, John the Baptist is Elijah of Malachi chapter 4. But John the Baptist says, I'm not Elijah, right? So you're kind of like, well, well, are you or are you not? So I think there's two ways to kind of understand why we get contradictory answers here. Jesus, the angel, they're both saying he's Elijah. And, and John's saying that he's not right? One, I think you have John either denying the fact that he's the resurrected Elijah, right? Like, I'm not Elijah, but I am very similar in the ways that Malachi would talk about him in the way that Jesus talks about me in this way, right? But I think he, he could be just simply denying, I'm not actually Elijah, right? Like, like, you don't have something weird going on here where I've been, where I've been gone, remember, because he gets taken up into heaven in a whirlwind, He's not actually dead. His body's not on the earth. So he could have easily been plopped back down on the earth. Here's Elijah again. So I think he's trying to discount that potentially. I am not the Elijah from the Old Testament. But I think there's also the possibility that John was still becoming more and more aware of, of who he was in God's plan, right? Like, I don't know that he fully embraced or understood how important he really was. Maybe, maybe Zechariah doesn't really fill him in about the prophecy of, of, of him fulfilling Malachi chapter four, right? So there, I mean, there's easy ways to explain John's not lying here, right? He's not lying, nor if you put him and Jesus together in the same room, would they get into an argument about this, right? Jesus over here saying, you are Elijah, and John the Baptist saying, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, you're not, right? Like that, that's not the scenario here. I think John the Baptist is clearly saying, I'm not the Elijah, I'm not him back on this earth. <clears throat> and there's also the possibility that he's not fully aware of who he is and how important he is in this plan, okay? But he ultimately denies being Elijah here. And he could have potentially really jumped on this, especially if he knew what, what was told to his dad. He really could have made a big deal about this because he would have been celebrity format here had he embraced this and said, you're right, I am Elijah, right? Like you've been waiting for me and I am Elijah, and it would have totally detracted from the Messiah. The people weren't supposed to wait for Elijah. They're supposed to wait for Jesus. They're supposed to wait for the Messiah. All this guy is supposed to do is to make the way, to prepare the way. John denies it, doesn't want any attention, doesn't want anything to detract from Jesus. He's very quickly to point the attention back to the Messiah. Number three, he denies being the prophet. Does anybody know where this anticipation comes from the idea of the prophet that was being waited upon in Deuteronomy chapter 18 
So if you back up to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, God's talking to Moses and he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly. When you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of the other gods, that same prophet shall die. So there's this anticipation about another great prophet coming, right? And so you see these great prophets come in the Old Testament, but they're not exactly like Moses, not exactly like Moses, because they don't play the, the intercessory role like the priests do, right? So, so after Moses, you start getting into uh, the separation of like the kings and the priests and, and the leadership coming from one area and then the spiritual leadership coming from the other. And it's not until you see Jesus show up on the scene where he kind of merges some of these offices back together. And he's more like Moses than any of the other prophets in the Old Testament, because he, he's that intercessor for us as much as he is a prophet, right? And so there's this anticipation of a prophet coming, and we see this being applied to Jesus. So it's certainly not John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is very quick to, to um, deny being the prophet. In Acts chapter 3, verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. All right, so Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophet prophecy. In Acts chapter 7, we see it again in verse 37. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise him up for you, a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, who do not know what has become of him. Goes on to talk about how Jesus fulfills this role as the prophet that was, was assumed to show up, that was promised to come, right? So John the Baptist is asked, are you, are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Right? He's, he's denying these things. He could have easily tried to manipulate the situation to get praise for it, but he denies these things. Well, then these guys are kind of getting fed up with it because they've been sent to get answers and they don't feel like they're getting positive answers. They're getting negative answers, right? All we're finding out is who you are not. Who are you? Who are you then? Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Verse 22, so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And again, what, what a tempting opportunity to really make much of yourself right here, right? Like you've got some of the most important people in your culture, your religious culture, right? Who are saying, tell us some things about you. 
right? Who are you? What do you say about yourself? And, and I wonder how I would have reacted in a similar situation. You know, when somebody is, is saying, hey, this is your opportunity to tell me about you, right? Picture yourself if you've ever been through the interview process. Oftentimes your employer says, okay, now here's your opportunity. Tell me why I should hire you, right? Like make much of yourself right now. Tell me all that I should know about you that would make you be a good fit for this job, right? And that's when you kind of have to turn into a self-promoter and kind of talk about how you will be an asset to the company. These guys show up and say, who, who do you say you are? What do you make of yourself, basically? Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So number four, John identifies himself with being a voice. So they've been talking about Old Testament prophecies. And so John the Baptist dips back into the Old Testament as well. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Now this is in anticipation of the children of Israel coming back to Israel out of captivity. So they've been gone for a while. And it says in verse 3, a voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all the flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All right, so there's this anticipation of, of children of Israel coming back from captivity and this idea of making the, the pathway straight like clear the road so that they have access to come back. Basically that the Lord is ready to move his people back out of captivity. And so the road maybe hasn't been traversed in a while. There could be down trees. There could, there could be ravines that need to be filled in. There's going to be a, a lot of people coming back. How do we make that path straight? How do we make the way uh, appropriate, right? Some of us have been blessed to go down to Chris's cabin before. And if you've never been to Chris's cabin before, it's hard to describe the journey to Chris's cabin because when you think you're almost there, you're about halfway there because his cabin is so far off the beaten path. And I remember the very first time that I went down to Chris's cabin, the the roads were unlike anything I'd ever witnessed before, right? Like I was told that you would need four-wheel drive. What I wasn't told is that you might would need a tank to get down there. The way that the water will will weather the road and kind of wash out the road. Like it's not for the faint of heart and it's not for your two-wheel drive vehicles. Like they just won't get down there. In fact, since then, guys in our church have bought vehicles specifically so that when they go to Chris's cabin, they don't have to ride with somebody, they can drive their vehicle down there. And I remember this it was the worst that it's ever been since then. Like since then, people have gone through and they've scraped it and, and kind of cleared it. Much like what I get the picture of here. Because that first time we went down there, I literally got out of my truck and asked another guy who was with us, I said, I need you to drive it because I'm not comfortable going any further. I was like, this is, this is just a mess. Like, I don't know how to get over some of the things that we're having to go through, right? And so then in, in subsequent trips down there, people have cleared the way. And even now, when, when Chris goes down there, or his brother goes down there, or other people go down there, typically somebody kind of goes ahead to see if there's any down trees or anything that will prohibit other people from being able to get there, right? You don't have to cut trees. You might have to fill in gaps. We want to check the mud holes to see like, hey, what what level of four-wheel drive do you need to get to the cabin? 
right? And so there's people that go before and kind of pave the way, clear the road, because there's others that are coming behind. And that's what John identifies himself with in regards to the plan of the Messiah coming. He says, I'm here to basically pave the way, to prepare the way so that when Jesus shows up, he is readily received rightly because the the way has been made uh, clear for him, basically. So John identifies himself in this way, and it's maybe not as glamorous of a position as he could have seized. He sees himself simply as a workman who makes the road clear for the coming one. I think it's interesting that he identifies himself with a voice in contrast to Jesus being the word, right? John is not the substance. He's not the message. He's just the communicator of it, right? So you get this picture that Jesus is the word. John's simply the voice of it, right? John's just simply proclaiming the word who is Jesus. There's one commentator said, there's no independent importance of his own. Without Jesus, John the Baptist isn't important. And that's really true about us too, that, that, that our value, our purpose, our importance, our identity, it's completely wrapped up in our creator. If we don't have Jesus, then we don't have significance. We just don't, right? So there's no independent importance of John the Baptist on his own. If he doesn't have Jesus to make his path straight, he doesn't have any importance, right? His, his value is tied to Jesus. He continually de-emphasizes himself, even though Jesus exalted him. Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus says, up until now, John the Baptist is the greatest. He's the greatest guy. He, he's the most important guy up to this point. Now, he goes on to kind of allude to, hey, people that come after this, that, that show the same type of humility, they're just as great as him, if not greater. But Jesus puts great importance upon John the Baptist. John the Baptist is constantly making less of himself, but he's not the guy that kind of goes around wanting to be more and discouraged that he's not more and talking negatively about himself, right? Like you've been around people who belittle themselves and talk negatively about themselves, but that's not humility, right? That's a sign of somebody who wants to be much more than they believe that they are. And they're not content being less than that, right? So humility and what John the Baptist is doing here, he's not belittling himself. He's not making less of himself with a desire to be more right? He's properly assessing who he is in God's plan. He's communicating that, right? And so he's demonstrating great humility in who he is and the role that he plays. The implication for us is that our purpose is to make much of Christ, even at the expense of ourselves. Even if it means costing ourselves glory, we have a responsibility to make much of Jesus. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. So this is where I would want us to just kind of pause for a second and think through, okay, are there any opportunities in my life right now where I'm choosing to make more of myself than I should at the expense of making much of Christ in that situation? Am I using any situations in my life to promote myself versus glorying in Christ? And so as I was kind of processing this and thinking through this, like, is this, is this playing itself out in my, in my life in any way, right? And one 
thing that immediately come to, comes to my mind, so I'm trusting that's the Holy Spirit bringing about conviction in my life. We are in the midst of um, re-enrollment season at Trinity, right? So it's always kind of, even though the school board says you shouldn't feel any pressure about this as a principal, like, like it's kind of pressure season for me because you, you just never really know, is everybody going to come back or not next year, right? Like you've got a certain enrollment right now, and we're almost 300, and we've been almost 300 for the past four or five years, right? And it's always this guessing game for me, like, man, are we going to, are we going to be blessed again to have this, this type of uh, enrollment, right? Cause it's necessary if we're going to pay bills and pay checks and uh, pay salaries, like we got to have the enrollment, right? And so school board tells me how many kids I have to have. Um, and so I start to look regularly at our re-enrollment numbers to see what our re-enrollment numbers are, right? So I'm very focused this time of year on trying to boost our re-enrollment numbers. So I'm constantly emailing parents. I'm constantly asking to meet with parents. I'm trying to be very proactive to get our numbers up, right? And there's a battle with pride right now for me because our re-enrollment numbers for the middle school are like dominant right now. I mean, like they're, they're, they're exceptional right now, higher than I've really ever seen at this time of year. And I should be very content with that. And I should be glorying in that for Christ's sake, that God has chosen to bless families and they have chosen to use that blessing to put their kids in Trinity next year, ultimately where they're going to hear about Jesus, right? But the tension and the temptation for me is to look to see the other schools. How's elementary's re-enrollment? How's high school's re-enrollment? How's pre-K's re-enrollment? And, and it's not anywhere near what middle school's re-enrollment is right? And so I've spent more time glorying in myself, thinking, man, I hope the school board sees this. I hope they see who's really getting it done right here, right? Like, like it's me in the middle school who is dominating re-enrollment season right now and not some of the other areas where really my joy should come from the fact that, man, there are, there are 87% of our kids that are already guaranteed to come back next year and are going to sit through our chapel services and our Bible classes and are going to be around our teachers again for another year where they're going to be exposed to the gospel and they're going to be exposed to opportunities for sanctification, right? That's where my joy should be. That's where my celebration should be, not in how good of a job I'm doing or how good of a job my teachers are doing in generating re-enrollment when compared to some of the other areas. So that's an example for me immediately where I feel like I'm tempted to make much of myself. Tell me, tell me about your middle school. Tell me about your school. Man, we are, we are really good at re-enrollment right now, right? And, and, and to make much of myself, make much of my team, when really it's an opportunity to make much of Jesus. So I would challenge you to kind of think through, is there any opportunities like that in your life right now where you are tempted to make, and, and man, it is so tempting in a, in a culture where we work jobs and we, we desire raises so that we can better take care of our families. And oftentimes within those settings, we have to, we, we need to see much of ourself made so that people notice it so that we get those things. And, and, the, and the, the benefit of being a Christian is that we don't really have to make much of ourselves to receive what we, we are due. That ultimately we work for somebody bigger than any employer who sees all, knows all, and can certainly put us in positions Positions to have bigger raises, positions to have better positions. Like ultimately, we, we work for somebody who sees all of that, even when our employer doesn't, to the point that we don't have to sell ourselves to our employers. We don't have to make much of ourselves. And sometimes at the cost of making less of others so that we do look better, we don't have to do that. 
We don't have to do that. And John the Baptist is a great example of this. He had every opportunity. They say, who are you? Who do you, what do you say about yourself? And he just keeps talking about Jesus. He just keeps pointing people to Jesus. Our purpose is to make much of Christ, even at the expense of ourselves. All right, number two, we have to verbally proclaim a proper view of Jesus. We have to verbally proclaim a proper view of Jesus. So back in John chapter one, verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one who, uh, one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So they ask him a little bit about his baptism ministry. He doesn't really answer it. He doesn't really explain much about it. He just says, you're, you're worried about the wrong things here, right? Like, like you're worried about me and you should be worried about the one that, that's here already that you don't know yet. He's the one you should be asking questions to, right? The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after, he, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He begins to hear verbally proclaim Jesus when Jesus's presence is now brought into this setting. He verbally proclaims who Jesus is. And I think this is an important part for us to kind of pause and be reminded that, man, when we talk about our context of work and family and neighborhood and hobbies, that we're, we're too prone to think, man, if I have a good attitude in that setting, if I, if I live the way I'm supposed to live in those settings, I will end up pointing people to Jesus through my actions, right? That I'm going to live in such a way in those settings where I make a difference based on my, my lifestyle. And there's certainly truth to that, that the scripture talks about how our lifestyle, our good works is meant to point people to Jesus. But if it's not generating conversations where people are wondering, where is this coming from? Then, then our lifestyles aren't pointing people to Jesus right? At best, they're just confusing people because people don't know why we live the way that we do. It's so important that we realize for us to be effective in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our workplace, with our hobbies, we have to verbally proclaim things about Jesus. And John does that here. He declares who Jesus is. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, what's really going on there in that message? Well, I think there's a a few things here. Um, For our kids, be ready to tell us about Jesus with your words. But the message that that John the Baptist says here is that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So let's unpack that just a little bit to see what is the message that we're supposed to proclaim and how is that rooted in Scripture? Well, I think it starts with um, communicating that there's a problem. There's a problem. And the problem is that we need a substitute. So rewind a little bit in Scripture because the title Lamb of God It's only given to Jesus by John. And it's only mentioned in the gospel of John and in the book of Revelation. You don't find the title Lamb of God anywhere else in scripture. Now you see references to Jesus being like a lamb, but him being declared as the Lamb of God, it comes from the gospel of John and the book of Revelation. But it made sense to people who were hearing it because there was this anticipation that an ultimate lamb would be needed at some point. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 22. And I think God allows Abraham to have this massive teaching opportunity for Isaac. And Abraham doesn't even realize that it's going to be a great teaching tool, right? But, but God sends Abraham up on this mountain with Isaac 
right? And, and Isaac's going to be the sacrifice. And Isaac starts to realize, okay, we're going to worship God. I know what we normally do when we worship God. And we don't have the missing thing that we need here, right? Like he asked dad, he says, where's the lamb at? Where's the lamb? Like we got it. We have to sacrifice something here. There has to be blood that's shed here. Where is that lamb? And that's where, that's where Abraham responds and says, the Lord's going to provide that for us. Now, Abraham's going up there fully confident that he's going to have to kill his son. But we know from the New Testament that he fully believed that God was going to raise him from the dead if need be. But he communicates to his son, there'll, there'll be a substitute there when we get there. God's going to provide the lamb for us. But there's this, this problem that, that God uses this whole situation to kind of teach Isaac, hey, a substitute's needed for you, right? Like, like something has to have its blood shed. And if it's, if it's not a lamb, it's going to be either Abraham or Isaac here. Right? So we have to communicate when we communicate the gospel, when we communicate Jesus, when we share the light, we have to communicate that there's a problem, that there's even a need for a lamb. So Jesus doesn't make sense until you realize that there's a great need for him. And that's the problem. There's a sin problem where death and bloodshed is required. And we saw that all through the book of Hebrews, where there is no bloodshed, there is no forgiveness of sins. Right? And so the problem is we need a substitute. And then Jesus is the solution for that problem. He is our atonement. He is our righteousness. And we see this in Isaiah chapter 53. So this this theme of an ultimate lamb kind of runs through scripture. Abraham feels a need, a weight for a lamb. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. We see Jesus being tied to that lamb. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and he was esteemed and we esteemed him not. We saw that in John one, he was rejected, right? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Right? So Jesus becomes the substitute for us. He becomes our atonement. He becomes our righteousness. And then we fast forward to the implication of the gospel, and that's that worship becomes our purpose now. And we see that most clearly in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So the message that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, it necessitates us helping people see that there are sins in the world that need to be taken away. away. So you have, to, you have to communicate the problem to people that there is sin that needs to be taken away and not just other people's sins, but, but your personal sins as well, right? Because we live in a culture where people 
constantly compare themselves to others. And the gospel certainly would be needed by other people, but maybe not me. So we have to communicate that there are sins that need to be taken away and that Jesus is the solution to that, that he is the lamb of God. So he dies, but he's not dead still, right? And so you read through the book of Acts and you'll find very clearly that if you were to ask the apostles and the disciples, hey, what key elements have to be mentioned when you share the gospel with somebody? They would absolutely in agreement say that the resurrection has to be communicated, that yes, the lamb of God takes away the sins of the world through his death, but he is raised to new life and he is one that we now live for and worship. That lamb in the book of Revelation, where his followers follow him wherever he goes, right? So the implication is that life is now about worshiping him when we've made that transition to see Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the implication for us is that we must biblically know who Jesus is and what he has done for mankind. If we're going to be a good witness, we're going to be a good witness. We have to make much of him and make less of ourselves make much of Christ, even at the expense of ourselves. And then secondly, we have to biblically know who he is and what he's done for mankind if we're going to be an effective witness. Having the the, the head knowledge, the theological knowledge of Jesus is so important so that we can articulate it and verbally communicate it because our lifestyle is not enough. Being a good employee at work and not gossiping with your coworkers and and doing things rightly at work, that doesn't save people. It, it, it makes your message more digestible, potentially. They see you living like what, what you're going to say. But the verbal aspect has to come at some point. There has to be a verbal declaration about the Lamb of God. And John the Baptist gives us that here. And then lastly, we have to accurately communicate a proper view of salvation. For our kids, salvation requires repentance and faith. We have to accurately communicate a proper view of salvation. And I think if we're honest, this is where a lot of us really stink at this. Because if I were to just ask most people in this room, can you articulate the gospel for me? I have no doubts that we would score in the high, the high 90s, if not 100, on a test like that. Where I think we oftentimes struggle is in the application of the gospel to somebody that we are talking to. Like we don't know when the gospel has actually been received. And a lot of us want to err on the side of, I want to be really, really sure, really, really sure that you mean and believe what I'm trying to tell you before I actually give you like the, the response part to the gospel. Look what John the Baptist does here in, in, his, in, in some of his communication. Number one, he helps us to see that salvation requires repentance. And this takes a knowledge of the type of baptism that he was doing. Right? So it says, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Right? You fast forward down to the bottom. John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. It remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Right? So John even talks about a greater type of baptism to come than his water baptism. Now, what's John's baptism? And we're not going to spend but just a short amount of time here because we're almost done. But I want you to understand John's baptism was in the context of in the Jewish culture, Gentile people 
who wanted to become a proselyte, basically meaning they were not Jewish, but wanted to convert to the Jewish religion or become part of the Jewish culture, would go through a baptism-type ritual to identify with the Jewish people. It was a cleansing-type ritual that basically says, I'm giving up my old life of, of being a non-Jew, of being a Gentile, and I want to embrace this new thing, this, this new life, right? And so it was primarily reserved for Gentiles. That's where John kind of revolutionized it in that he's asking Jewish people to do what you would normally ask a Gentile person to do. He's saying, like, you need this. You need to repent of your sins. It's not okay that you're from Abraham, and that, that doesn't save you, right? And so that's where he was trying to push back on them of, hey, don't just assume because your, your, your heritage is of God that you too are of God, right? So he says, you need to repent. And the act of baptism, much like what we do, was an outward sign of what was already taking place in their heart. It was their, their, their um, visual demonstration of repentance. Salvation requires that. And John was communicating that, that to make the way for Jesus, repentance has to happen. But that ultimately the second piece, salvation requires identification through faith with Jesus. That even the baptism itself doesn't save, the act of washing doesn't save, because he points to something bigger and spiritual when he talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we know, and, and there's people that teach this, people not far from here that teach that baptism is necessary for salvation. And we know that's not true because we know the thief on the cross is with Jesus in paradise the day that he dies, and he was never baptized. He didn't have time to get baptized. And he's not an exception to the rule. I think he's placed there primarily so we can see that we don't have to doubt people who get saved on their deathbed. Like, we don't have to discount them and say, ah, can you really do that? Like, th there's not a whole lot of good works that follow that to really justify that person's salvation, right? Like, here's a guy who spent all of his life rejecting Jesus, and then right before he takes his last breath, he says, man, I'm putting my faith and trust in you. Jesus says, awesome, I'm going to see you in paradise today. You don't have to get baptized. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to take communion. You don't have to do anything good. It's all about me, right? So." The thief on the cross is, the, is a great example of how the gospel works, right? It's through repentance. It's through identification, through faith with Jesus, right? So identification with Christ through the Holy Spirit is what's being talked about here in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit, right? It happens the same way for everybody. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So John points to this spiritual type of baptism. And I think it's interesting, too, that the Holy Spirit even had to confirm to John the Baptist who Jesus was. Right? Like we, we talked, and I heard some of our groups talking, like the only way somebody can get saved is if the Holy Spirit does some type of supernatural work in a person's heart to help them see all these things. Well, John even testifies to the fact that he required that too, right? That he was told in the midst of your baptizing, there will be one who the, the Holy Spirit through the representation of the dove will come upon this individual and will remain upon this individual. And that's the Messiah. And John witnesses that when he baptizes Jesus. He witnesses a supernatural uh, demonstration 
from the Holy Spirit about who Jesus is, and it's the same for all of us. For those of us that are saved, it took a work of the Holy Spirit to confirm in our hearts the identity of Jesus, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Lamb of God, and he deserves our faith and our trust. So the implication for us is that not only must we articulate who Jesus is and what he has done, we must be able to share how one can be saved by him. This is where I would encourage you, because I've been in the same spot too before where I've, I've shared the gospel and the person is responding, saying all the, saying all the things that you, you would want them to say, but there's this twinge of doubt in my mind where I'm thinking, I don't know if they really mean this. I don't know if they really get this. Do I need to keep explaining it? Maybe we should come back to this and talk about it again. And man, I, I would say that we can, we can err on the side of, we always want to tell somebody how to finish off the gospel presentation with action. Here's the problem. Here is Jesus. He is the solution to the problem. Do you believe that? Yes. Let's keep talking about it because I really want to make sure that you believe that. We need to finish it off and, and explain to them the, the act of repentance and faith. And, and, and be okay because our role is what? Our role is to present the gospel. Our role isn't to make it take root and to be 100% sure that it's going to produce fruit before we, before we step back and say, hey, I think this person just got saved. Because, I mean, look at the New Testament. You got people that are falling away, right? You got people who proclaimed a faith. Who knows who led Demas to Jesus? right? But Paul has to write and say, hey, Demas isn't around anymore, right? Like we thought Demas was one of us, but, but, he, but he stopped being one of us. Even John will say this later in 1 John, right? That, hey, these people were with us and then they stopped being with us. And they're basically like antichrist now. They, they made a profession and then they, they got away from that profession. And that doesn't mean that John or Peter, whoever did a poor job of presenting the gospel, right? They shared it correctly. And I'm sure they shared the correct steps for how to respond to it. And at that point, sometimes people are going to genuinely respond. And then other times people are going to show that they really didn't. But I think we don't have to be so hesitant to, to say, hey, I shared the gospel with somebody at, at work and that person prayed to receive Christ. And we can celebrate that and celebrate it until we have a reason not to celebrate it type of thing. All right. Application. Is your life defined more by making much of Jesus or by making much of yourself? We've talked about becoming a witness, maintaining a proper view of ourself, verbally proclaiming Jesus, accurately communicating how to receive Jesus. But going back to that question that we kind of paused earlier, is your life more about making much of yourself right now or making much of Jesus? How are we responding to that hypothetical question of who are you? What do you say about yourself? Are we more faithful to answer that question right now in our life? Or are we more faithful to point people to Jesus in our life? And that's something that I want us to take and, and kind of wrestle with and, and, and make that personal for you in your setting. I shared with you briefly a little bit about how that looks in my life right now and how I'm wrestling with that idea. I want you to make that same decision to, to think through and assess your life and wrestle with, are you making much of Jesus as much as you can? Or is there a temptation that you're giving into to make much of yourself? Our family worship questions for this week um, are tied to our application Sunday for next week. So I encourage you to use John 1, 1 through 34 as a family this week. Talk about some of the things we've learned about John the Baptist. Talk about some things that we've learned about Jesus already through these first 34 verses. God, we love you and we thank you that you sent people like John the Baptist to 
prepare the way for the, 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 the coming of the Messiah. We're thankful that John and others were faithful to verbally proclaim you and that people responded to that. And God, help us to see our role in this too. God, help us to see that our role is to, to make much of Jesus, even when it means we're not receiving a whole lot of glory and credit for it. God, help us to, to minimize the importance of making much of ourselves and being known by others because of how great we think we are. God, give us real humility, not in a way where we belittle ourselves because we want to be more than we are, but to really see ourselves in light of who Jesus is. God, help us to echo the same thoughts that John the Baptist had, that there's one who's, who we're not even worried to untie his sandals and wash his feet, that, that that's something that we shouldn't even be allowed to do. God, help us to see that, that Jesus is far greater than us and help us to want other people to see that Jesus is far greater than us as well. God, help us with, with people that we have in our life right now that need to hear us talk about Jesus. Maybe they're seeing us live our life for Jesus, but don't know how to connect the dots yet for why we do those things. God, give us a boldness to tell other people verbally about Jesus. God, help us to be able to articulate how one can even be saved through repentance and through faith. God, help us to have the same passion that John had that we would make Jesus known in such a way where others are believing in him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.